and happy Pride to everyone. It was Pride in Olympia this weekend. I feel blessed to be sober and to have gotten to spend my Pride with my queer family. Welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Network. <laughs> uh, we should have done a Pride episode with Pablo. That would have been fun. Next year, I promise we will do something special and gay for the month of June. Uh, we do have a great podcast this week, though, featuring the wonderful queer Vimala Sara. In this episode, Kevin Griffin and Vimala Sara will explore the idea of 12-step lineage and Buddhist suttas that explore addiction and inspire healing from addiction. Kevin Griffin and Vimala Sara and... Vince Colin will be exploring this topic further at this year's Buddhist Recovery Summit. If you haven't registered yet, be sure to check out BuddhistRecoverySummit.org to find out more information and register. I just keep getting more and more excited to have all the peers that have signed up come together. Every time I find out another friend of mine that I know long distance uh, is going to be there at the summit, I just, like, get really excited. Um, we have people coming from all around the world to, you know, join our communities together and, you know, grow, learn, listen, collaborate. Um, you know, I'm also excited for the teachers. Obviously, the teachers are going to be amazing. Uh, Vimla Sara, Kevin Griffin, Gary Sanders, Sue Newfeld-Ellis, Brian Dean Williams, Vince Cullen... Gene Toller is going to be there. Uh, there's And there's more. I'm like, we're actually releasing the full weekend schedule for the summit out today. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, I'm probably working on it while you're listening to this, if it's still Monday and <laughs> you're tuning in. Um, be sure to check out BuddhistRecoverySummit.org. I will be releasing it there first. Um, and then it will go onto our Facebook pages. Uh, also, don't forget, Buddhist Recovery Network will be hosting a free live Dharma talk online June 7th. It's like a live podcast. Uh, Angu Devin Ashwood will be presenting Living an Authentic Life. So first, mo- first Sunday of the month, we do the Buddhist Recovery Network Academy. And uh, this amazing teacher will be there giving a live Dharma talk. So... Check, put this on your calendar and um, yeah, I'll go ahead and play the conversation by Kevin Griffin and Vimla Sara. is really quite exciting because in a way, Kevin, I see you as in the lineage of Bill W and Dr. Bob. And the reason why I say that is it's because we know that Dr. Bob writing in the 40s and 50s was actually saying that we could adopt the Noble Eightfold Path within the 12-step 
tradition. We could literally adopt it or it could be seen as an alternative. Yeah. So he's writing about that in the 40s and 50s. It's like, wow, you know, Buddhism hadn't even really come to the West then. Yeah. And he's he's talking about that, but nobody really picks that up. Yeah. I mean, even Bill W. had says around the 12 steps that it's not like you have to take them literally. The most important thing is your abstinence. These are guidelines. What are they pointing to? And yet, so many years, 50, 60 years later, you pick that thread up of bringing Buddhism and 12 steps together. Well, it's just a historical accident in a way, right? That, I mean, whether you call it an accident or karma, that uh, the Dharma comes to the West and, you know, and it meets this existing uh, spiritual path, uh, which is somewhat, both of those things are somewhat miraculous. The fact that the, the 12 steps arose at all after, you know, there are people that struggled with alcoholism and addiction for millennia. Uh, and these guys kind of figure out something that worked for some people. That's the first time anything really consistently did that and then I mean uh, uh, you know who, who knows how it all all happens uh, I mean I, you know I see the Dharma coming to the West as very much a response to the um, people the realization of the shortcomings of the of consumerism, essentially, mm -hmm. you know, the fifties in, at least in America, you know, people start to get very comfortable and, uh, and they're not struggling to survive like they had through the depression and, and people had again for forever historically, you, you get this period of great, uh, material comfort. And what do you learn when you get everything you need materially you learn that that's not the path to happiness that's what the buddha realized right he he, he wasn't coming out of poverty you know and st struggling to just to survive you know he had everything he needed and that's when the dharma kind of arises in the west in the 60s particularly i mean we had some the zen in the 50s but much more in the 60s with this generation that grew up with comfort whose parents were saying you've got everything you need what's your why are you unhappy you know and they're like because stuff is not doesn't make you happy and so they start to look to this um you know alternative vision of dharma and eastern spirituality well at the same time it happens i mean i don't need to give you this history of the 60s but it happens that you know drugs uh, drugs become very popular so that you wind up with this generation that by the late 70s and early 80s as cocaine takes over you know you've got all this this huge influx of people into the recovery world in the 80s, especially because of cocaine, because cocaine accelerated, accelerates the, the uh, hitting bottom. And, uh, and what do they run into? You know, they, they walk into these rooms where people are kind of presenting them with 1930s and 40s 
spiritual ideas, you know, kind of Protestant Christianity. And they're kind of like, well, I don't know about that. Like, what about Ramdas? Or, you know, I remember, yeah, I'm in more into yoga or something, you know, and, and it's sort of uh, this clash happens that that eventually i mean because i got sober in 1985 and uh, and i definitely saw this happening uh that there was the old school aa folks and then the younger people who were kind of like okay i I don't know if i'm going to go for this and um so uh, you know eventually there's you know now it seems that we have you know a, a generation that's been raised on mindfulness you know, people that are 30 years old, that mindfulness has been around for their whole life. And mm-hmm. so it's nothing, it's nothing at all odd to them to bring in Dharma. It makes perfect sense to them. There's, there's that, that whole thing seems to be integrating. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a, a bit about that. Just true being brought up in mindfulness or CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, or dialectical behavior therapy. And we have this living inquiry, compassionate inquiry, which I see are strands of Buddhism. But what they don't have is something that you're really interested in, which can really offer a a way out of our addiction are the suttas. It's going back to the suttas, some of the really pivotal, important teachings. And I, what, what, let's start with what is your favorite sutta in terms of, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of speaking in now in, in the frame of recovery addiction. Which is your most favorite sutta? Oh, that's, that's a tough one. Um, let me, I have a list. Let me, let me look at my list and I'll, and I'll think because uh, I kind of, you know, the, it's more for me that uh, different ones kind of speak to different um, pieces. I, I mean, you know, you kind of have to start with the the Four Noble Truths. So the that's first presented in the setting in motion, the wheel of the Dharma in the Samyutta Nikaya. Uh, because the Four Noble Truths talk about suffering and clinging and letting go of clinging. So that's the foundation. It's what I've drawn on ever since I've started doing this kind of teaching. Yeah, That changed my life. Actually, the Four Noble Truths, I can really say, really transformed my life. It was actually, I'll tell you something funny about the Four Noble Truths. I couldn't quite understand why the third truth was that there was an end to suffering and the fourth truth that there was a way out. I couldn't, I thought it was the wrong way around. And I was like, I couldn't get my head around it. And then I suddenly realized, I thought actually, if it had been the other way around, I wouldn't have continued. But the fact that that third truth gave me hope, actual hope was just so pivotal. Yeah, well, right. Bhikkhu Bodhi points out that, the Four Noble Truths actually are presented in reverse cause and effect order. 
The first one is the effect of the second one, and the third one is the effect of the fourth one. Uh, and that, that, is, that took me some time as well to kind of absorb. But you, I think you're exactly right that the third one is just telling you, hey, it's, it's okay. Because you look at the second noble truth, you're like, oh, my God, like clinging causes suffering. I'm never going to get out of this. And then you realize, no, no, there's a way. It's, you know, it's okay. You can end it. Uh, and, and and I also take it as being very simply saying, you know, if the second noble truth says clinging causes suffering, the third noble truth says, if you stop clinging, you'll stop suffering. Oh, okay. That kind of, you know, puts it out there in pretty uh, simple terms and, and, and logical terms. Yeah. Let's talk about the, I think, the, the Takathasana Sutta. You really, is one of your favourite suttas, the um, removing distracting thoughts. It's a favourite sutta of mine as well, actually. Yeah, I was just doing some writing on that this morning. Um, Majjhima Nikaya 20. It's, uh, well, one of the things that I have a certain perverse pleasure in some of the... Uh, sort of uh, surprising imagery and similes that show up in the suttas. So uh, that one has two of the most, I think, shocking images that we run into. One is the the image that he says, in order to remove distracting thoughts, if they're real, and this is particularly for very disturbing thoughts, not just for anything that comes along, but if you're really having a hard time, you know, imagining that you're, that, your thought is like a dead carcass hanging around yeah. your neck, you know, and like that's so <laughs> disgusting. But you sort of get that. I mean, it's kind of about having a conscience, I think. Mm. Uh, it's, it's sort of realizing like, wow, if people knew what I was thinking, it would really be sh- I'd really be ashamed. And uh, uh, exactly. Sometimes I say to people when they say they're enlightened, you know, I just say, well, are you happy for me to hear all your thoughts? And they look at me and I say, well. That's a good, good response. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as I was trying to write about this this morning, I was trying to address to this, the word shame, which in our culture, it's like about humiliation. Uh, and it's, it's seen very negatively something shaming you for for something normal you know whereas in buddhism it's about having a conscience and and recognizing that because we have that phrase some someone who has no shame we realize oh that's somebody who doesn't have a conscience you know they they can do anything and they don't feel bad about themselves so it's it's kind of tricky the language as we know is often tricky around spiritual mm. topics there's the word three isn't there positive yes. shame that we talk about H-I-R-I they usually paired with otapa hiri and otapa which again the translations are kind of old that shame and moral dread don't really resonate for us too much but but the idea of conscience and uh, and and sort of uh, I'd say personal conscience and social conscience, you know, uh, I think is what Hiri and Otapa are referring to. Uh, it's like how I feel about my behavior and also how it uh, you know shows up in the world. 
One of the things I love about this, this sutta, I do, as you say, the rotting carcass, but if all else fails, and this is a great one for those of us who are trying to, you know, cultivate our harm reduction or abstinence, it's all else fails, crush it. Yes. You know, and, you know, there is a practice, isn't there, screaming at the demons. And, and I tell you, one day I, I did that. Kevin, one day I was leading a, a, a devotional practice, a puja, and it was my birthday. And I, I had an expectation that somebody would be there and they didn't turn up. And I was trying to lead this puja. And I, I my mind was getting distracted and I had to scream inside my head, shut up. And it shattered because it was one of my old samskaras, you know, people not being there for me. I'm not loved. I'm not important. All this kind of stuff, which would have turned me to picking up my choice of addiction. But yeah, crushing it, it just worked. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, in case of emergency break glass. It's basically yes. one of those things. It's it's not something you want to try all the time because it's. And I mean, what's interesting about it is that it sounds so counter to a Buddhist approach, you know, which is like open your heart, be spacious, be gentle, be loving, and and that's where we like where we want to start generally that's how we try to approach things but i really appreciate that the buddha says you know there are different tools for different situations we need to be adaptable and not be rigid about well this is the right way to do it just be just be quiet just be kind just be gentle it's like no sometimes you need to be fierce right and this is, again, kind of goes back to my talking about people having their own program or developing their own practice, that you have to learn what, what's skillful at different times. And, and, and Buddhism doesn't offer us just this set, these are the rules, just do it this way. It, it really gives us these, these tools to draw upon, but we have to develop the intuition about what's a skillful tool to use at a particular time. And that's the that's the great challenge of practice, and why yeah. continuing ongoing year after year practice is so important. Uh, you know, because, like I was saying to someone, you know, when if somebody is applying for a teacher training program, they are asked something like, "How many retreats have you been on, and how long were those retreats?" They are not asked. How did that retreat go? <laughs> like, did you get enlightened on that retreat? Or what did you have good thoughts on that retreat? It's about it's really about the amount of time and commitment. And it's the same way that with somebody in recovery, the first question is, how long have you been in recovery? Because we know that in practice and recovery with time, generally, and there are always exceptions, generally, wisdom, serenity all of the these positive qualities develop with time if we stick with it at this uh, this year's buddhist recovery summit you are going to be doing some teaching on the suttas which i think is absolutely fantastic and of course there'll be many people who have never heard of of the suttas and how would you explain what what are suttas and and why are they important yeah 
Well, I, I want to back up a little bit and just say that the once again the reason I am pursuing this besides my own interest, which is always one reason I pursue topics, is that I've seen that the Buddhist recovery community has is maturing with time. When I first taught a retreat 15 years ago, none of the people had ever been on a retreat before. You know, so they, I had to help them with every step of the way. Now people come on retreats with me and they've been on many retreats and we can go much deeper and we can do much more. And so the same applies to the teachings. You know, originally I was kind of offering these, uh, you know, westernized versions of Dharma that people could kind of relate to and, and, and that was easy to swallow. But over time, I see that people are becoming more and more serious and they really want to know, well, what did the Buddhist Buddhists say? What are the exact words? that? Uh, how do we understand it? So, so what I will say to people in answer to your question is w- we're trying to get at what the Buddha really taught, not just some aphorism that you see on Facebook that somebody posts, the Buddha said, let go of everything or whatever. You know, we're, you know and when you get serious about this practice, you start to realize that there's a lot of subtlety, a lot of complexity, and and you kind of keep going, and you think, well, if the Buddha was wise, then we should go back and try to find out what he said. So, what we have, the suttas are the, as far as we know, the earliest preserved teachings directly from the Buddha. They're in a language. Pali, which is very similar to Sanskrit. So sutta is the Pali for the word sutra, which is the Sanskrit. And there's this, it's this massive collection that was originally an oral tradition and was eventually written down and preserved. We can tell it's not literally what the Buddha said because there's so much repetition, uh, there's so much sort of... Uh, uh, there's a pat sort of standard phrasing that gets put in. Uh, so, so then we're like, well, what did the Buddha really say? Well, you essentially, because there's so much repetition, you kind of realize, well, that was, that was a point he must have been making over and over. So uh, th- there's a whole study now, and c- certain there's a one Buddhist monk, Venerable Analio, who's sort of seen as in the forefront of this, trying to, it's kind of uh, Buddhist archaeology, like trying to get at what the Buddha really was saying. And, um, and so that's what we're, why we're getting into it, because uh, if we, the longer we practice, the more curious we get about what, what there was uh, what there is to gain from from the actual teachings of the Buddha. So, thank you for that. Let's let's look at. Uh, I've actually got a, a list of the suttas that you are interested in, and um, 
one of the ones that jumped out at me and I think was very pivotal for me in terms of my recovery was the pond similes, the five hindrances of ill will, sense, desire, sloth, torpor, restlessness and anxiety and doubt. And uh, I see that's one of the ones that really um, speaks to you. You want to say more? Yeah, that's a that's another great one. And I guess, uh, you know, it, it speaks to my you know, interest in literature, which I know you have as well as a poet, that that uh, you love these, love it when it's not just a a straight teaching, but but the imagery, the the Buddha was really gifted, it seems, in in capturing images and similes that that make a point. So for the five hindrances, he he imagines that there's a pond. And I think of it as you're looking into the pond. Uh, he, he doesn't quite say this, but this is the implication that you're looking into the pond and you're, and the pond is kind of your own mind. Uh, uh, and you're trying to see into your mind, see clearly into it. And with desire, he says, it's like somebody had thrown colored dyes into the pond. So you're seeing this kind of beautiful uh, image of yourself or of the world of, you know, and, and something that, you know, is really draws your mind. But it's not it's not true. It's like seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, as we say. It's it's exactly that kind of imagery. So the, so that's one image. So then, the, with anger, he says it's as as if the pond were boiling. The water the water was boiling, which is such a perfect image for anger, right? Because anger is heat, and we feel it in our body, and and the disturbance of it, and you can just imagine it's such a perfect image of it. For sloth and torpor, the images of algae all through the pond, you know, again, just kind of captures that feeling. You're, you're trying to meditate and you're falling asleep. It's like this thick algae covering a pond. And with with uh, anxiety, restlessness, it's as though the wind were blowing across the pond. And it's just the, the water is all churned up and stirred up with the wind. And then with doubt. It's uh, that there was mud, the pond was just muddy. So you're looking into it and nothing is clear. You can't really see anything clearly. It's just this murky uh, thing that you can't understand. So, yeah, those those five are, are so perfect. They are. They are perfect because these hindrances aren't intellectual. We know them and these similes, it's like just as you were going through them on a visceral level, I could really uh, feel the Vedana, feel the sensation in the body because they are real and they really do hijack our recovery, sabotage our recovery, sabotage our mental states. And just how seductive, as you say, like that first one of sense desire, the colors and, you know, and we can get carried off by the, you know, just by the brightness of the colors. Even I, you know, it's like when I'm on retreat, there's no distraction and I see a bright orange and I want the orange <laughs> because, you know, that I've had contact, my eyes had contact with this orange, there's Vedana arises and I want it, you know, and I could just see it, this sense desire just unfolding in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and, and right that he uses these visual images. So it's 
it, it's something you can feel and sense uh, in a way that you c- couldn't necessarily just the intellectual description of the states. And that's, again, some of his brilliance is sort of making things into very uh, sense, sensed or sensual uh, descriptions for us. Let's let's get into um, dependent origination. It was interesting that you chose this one to do with addiction and recovery. This being that becomes from the arising of this that arises, that not being does does not become from the cessation of that ceases. What does that have to do with addiction and recovery? Well, the dependent origination. it's said that dependent origination is like the full elucidation of the four noble truths. So the arising of suffering, how, how suffering arises, and how it ends. So it, it takes you through these 12 sort of stages that, of experience that... Uh, are very detailed and kind of show that how how things appear and uh, you know it's they happen so fast that you can't really sense them. Um, Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master, said trying to see uh, dependent origination in real time is like falling out of a tree and trying to count the branches as you fall toward the ground. So, so it's not so much that you're going to see this in real time, but you start to understand that there's a process. And the process starts with ignorance. And we can see how with addiction, that's how our process starts. It's ignorance of several things. It's ignorance of the risks of using, but it's also the ignorance, the essential ignorance is the ignorance that you believe that by using you're going to solve a problem and and so that the flip side of that being it turns out that using causes a problem doesn't solve a problem so you start with that ignorance and once you have that ignorance you're kind of in trouble because <laughs> you're on the wrong path it's like okay you're at the fork in the road and you choose to go the way that leads to hell you know, and, and once you're on the road to hell, you know, you're going to go to hell, uh, you know, temporarily, at least in this case, hopefully. So that ignorance then leads to the volition, the craving to, to act. And then all of that manifests in the mind and body and you start to do things. So there, a lot of this is inevitable. So once you get on that road to hell, you're kind of like sliding down there there's one point right in the middle of the process where it's said that you can step out of it and that is the stage of you referred to this before vedana or feeling and feel that's the the tone the feeling tone of each experience so you've you've kind of started in this process and then you feel something pleasant and the feeling of pleasant leads to craving so if there if you are are capable of applying enough mindfulness in the moment of feeling you're able to interrupt the movement from feeling to craving Mm -hmm. and once craving starts clinging 
and the whole playing out of the behavior, existence, birth, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, <laughs> all the fun stuff. And so the, the second foundation of mindfulness is being aware of feeling, right, of Vedana. Exactly, yeah. And the, that's, it's kind of surprising, I think, for someone who just practices mindfulness casually, whatever that means, but and in, even seriously, to, to see why the first foundation is body and breath and all that, and that's very familiar and that makes sense to us. The, n- the second one is trying to tune in to the subtle feeling tone of things. And the reason the Buddha wants us to see that is because of its implication in the development of suffering. If we're able to see the pleasant or the unpleasant or the neutral quality of a feeling, and and a feeling means just a sense experience, a sound, I mean, that's a sight, just, right? it's, I mean, and that's what we spend most of our time moving away from. And, you know, even in my own investigation, the neutral feeling is perhaps the most triggering when nothing much is going on. You know, it's like nothing much is going on and you want to shake it up a bit, just spice it up slightly. But we spend, I mean, this is the oxymoron, isn't it? Because, you know, as people with addictions, compulsive behaviours, we spent a lifetime moving away from feeling and now we're saying actually to get your recovery you got to start feeling you got to use you got to start coming home to that body yeah yeah and then you need to respond wisely to what Mm. you're feeling and that's the Mm. we've been responding to feeling all along but we haven't been aware of that process Mm. and so the buddha is trying to point us towards being aware of it and then being able to you know oh, there's another fork in the road right there, right? And there's actually a choice there where you can step out of, of the, the path to craving and to aversion and all that, where you can step into equanimity, really, is what arises when, you, when you're able to see that. And it was such inspiring teaching, aren't they? It's just so, as you talk about them, they're just so freeing. There's so much freedom. Yeah. They're so, and liberation. Yeah, they're so genius. He's such a genius yeah. that, that he's able to take this stuff apart yeah, uh, and, yeah. and not just to see it, but to understand mm-hmm. it and then put it together into a teaching. That's why he was more than just an enlightened being, but he was the world teacher. Right? Yeah. And actually, it's interesting. One of the suttas that you uh, like, which is really important for you, is, is the Buddha's decision to teach that that noble noble surge and of course it is yeah the fact that uh he decided or they they decided to teach sometimes people say it it the decision or or the decision why he wasn't going to teach was because it was just so simple that he just didn't think people would get it not that it was just so difficult. It was just that it was just so simple. What he was pointing to was so simple that we wouldn't get it. And that makes sense to me in a way, because how we like to complicate stuff. Yep. Yeah. That's right. He's he's just, it's like, um, it's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
And this, the, the importance of the noble friends and conversation, which is fellowship, Sangha, which is an, another one which you think is really important for those of us in recovery. Do you want to say a bit about that, Sutta? Yeah, it's another sutta that kind of surprised me when I first encountered it, because I always thought Buddhism was about meditating and being quiet. <laughs> and uh, and then there's this sutta where Ananda, who's the Buddha's attendant, says to the Buddha, well, half of the holy life is noble friends and noble conversation. And the Buddha says, do not say that, Ananda. The whole of the holy life is noble friends and noble conversation. So it's quite a statement uh i think i'm not sure he means it literally or uh, there, there's different ways to understand it but but it's it, obviously he's making the point that it's a lot more important than you think it is to be in a community of fellow seeking people uh, of course and we know often our disease is in isolation, either in isolation on our own or in isolation with those other people who are in the disease. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 The, and they are not noble. Mm. Uh, I mean, they're mm. low, we call mm. them lower companions. Right? In the, sure, sure. Not a nice thing because, you know, if they're noble lower companions, what are we? <laughs> but in any case, yeah. Uh, the the community and the support uh, is vital. I mean, even in the uh, you're familiar with the mindfulness based relapse prevention, which isn't a Buddhist. Well, I shouldn't say it's not. It's not a certainly not a twelve step approach. It's kind of an alternative to twelve step. They even say, well, once you work this program, you need some kind of social support, and uh, whether it's uh, you know twelve step or or some other program. And certainly the Which same is, can be said of, of meditation. I mean, mm. to, you know, to meditate alone and to try to be, be your own teacher, uh, there's not many people who can uh, succeed at that as a, in an ongoing way. I mean, you can meditate on your own certain amount, but, you know, if you don't have a community, it's going to be hard to sustain that. Which is why it's it's so important that recovery within the Buddhist world becomes explicit. I mean, this is one thing that we can really learn from the 12-step community, just how important community is. And and still now we, we have, you know, Buddhist communities, oh, you know, if we make it explicit, who will we, who will we attract to our Buddhist centers and we can't trust people and it's like I say we've always attracted those people it just hasn't been explicit yeah. you know and now let's be explicit and support the community yeah for sure yeah. Yeah. so it's been we've, we've been talking for quite a while so just really I want to acknowledge that and uh, is there anything anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to to share Gosh, no, not right now. I mean, this is just great. I love this conversation, Vimalasara. It's really uh, so fun to talk about this stuff. And and uh, I really appreciate your just your support of me and and uh, all the positive stuff. And and it, you know, you're you know, you're really a, a 
a sister for me on the, this path, if if that's an okay. Is it an okay thing? You're a bro. Put it. Um, yeah. You know that. I mean, obviously, we've we've taught together. People might not know that we have taught together, and we'll teach together again in the future. I'm sure. Mm. And and um, you know, I, I'm really. I really appreciate your practice and your teachings and all that you're offering and all the work you're doing uh, is just really a gift. And, and so thank you for that. Yeah, no, thank you. We, yeah, you're a bro. You are a brother. You've really uh, supported me. And, and it's great to be part of that recovery tribe and i've really enjoyed this conversation it's been you know it's just like oh we should have these conversations even you know more often thanks so much to kevin griffin and vimla sara for coming on and recording this talk for the podcast we did have slight technical problems. <laughs> Recording remote podcasts is not the easiest thing, <laughs> apparently, especially when all the programs that are supposed to make it simple aren't working and you have to do it all manually. Um, but yeah, but the next one, actually, we didn't have any problems recording, so it'll be crisp and clean. And yeah, so check out BuddhistRecoverySummit.org. For more information about the summit where Kevin Griffin, Vimala Sara, and many others will be at, that's BuddhistRecoverySummit.org. And be sure to tune in July 7th, the first Sunday of the month, for Angu Devin Ashwood's Living an Authentic Life. This will be on the Buddhist Recovery Network Academy which will be using the Zoom program that you can log in either through your computer or through a phone, but it'll be a live Dharma talk. Find out more information at BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash academy. Okay. May we all keep seeking wisdom and sharing that wisdom with our communities. 